Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, Jack Gilbert, former Vice President at the North Face and former President of Sierra Designs and the founder of Mountain Hardware, joins the podcast to talk about the history of gear. All right, welcome back, everyone, to the History of Gear. Um, today, I'm, I'm excited to have Jack Gilbert with me, the former Vice President at the North Face, uh, President, former President at Sierra Designs, and the founder and former, well, founder and former President at Mountain Hardware. Jack, I, I can't keep all the the titles straight. You've you've done so much and been been such a big part of this industry. Thanks for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. That's 45 years worth of uh, my time. So hopefully, some of it was well spent. I'm, I'm sure it was. You you come highly requested. Um, and I, I appreciate you working back and forth with we, me. We're finally sitting down and having a conversation. It took us a minute to get our schedule in, you know, our schedules figured out. Um, but I've had a number of people tell me you've got to talk talk with Jack, namely well, Sally I, McCoy. A lot so. of a lot of people I, I crossed paths with. She was one of the great ones. But I I actually started. Uh, I was a uh, college jock. I played basketball in college, and I went one year to work for a phone company for Pacific Telephone and I had to wear a coat and tie and I said this isn't working out so I ran into Hap Klopp and he was trying to buy an outdoor company and he had an idea that uh, manufacturing in the U.S. would be a good idea so I kind of uh, joined forces with him he was trying to buy Trailwise initially which was the original store in Berkeley that had both uh, the store was Trailwise, the uh, brand, or pardon me, the store was Ski Hut, the brand was Trailwise, and they brought in boots from Europe, uh, uh, Pavetta boots from Europe also. So they were the beginning in, in the greater Bay Area. What year would that have been? Uh, well, he started, right, he started, uh, George Rudolph is the guy, and he started renting skis on a train up from uh, Berkeley up to the ski areas. He actually set up a little rental business, and while you were going up, you could have a have a drink and rent your skis, and then ski, and then take the train back down. So that would have been in the late '40s. And then uh, when when I got involved with Hap, it was uh, 1968 was when, and he was trying like heck to buy Trailwise, but that didn't work out. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go back a little bit more, even before you you connected with Hap. Um, what what was your first connection to the outdoors? I mean, you mentioned being involved in sports and and playing in college, and like, did you have any connection to the outdoor industry before you had I, met Hap? What I, was what was that like? I did. I was a uh, I was a jock, but I was also a, a scout and up through uh, Explorer Scouts, and I did a lot of big. We had a Christmas tree lot to raise money, and I did a lot of big trips with my scout group. I did a fifty mile backpack through Bob Marshall wilderness area in montana and ran into bears and elk and uh, i like to fish too i also my dad took me fishing from the time i was very young up in the uh, sierra on the south fork of the tuolumne river and uh so i was i loved the outdoors from the beginning but i was kind of a multi multi-tasker is, is that something that your parents instilled in you or was that just kind of the culture at the time or being involved in scouts? Like where, where do you think that came from that connection to the outdoors? Well, my dad was in, in the military and uh, 
he he loved the outdoors too. He loved to take me fishing, and and from the time I was probably eight or ten years old, and and we went to a camp, a Berkeley camp called Camp Tuolumne, and we always fished up there. So I got I got the bug for the outdoors fairly early. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the scouts. I I went through scouts as well, and um, I think so many um, so many people kind of discovered that love of the outdoors through through the scout program um i think of people like wayne gregory i'm, I'm sure there's a number of of other people who were scouts and that was kind of their first introduction to the outdoors and then into gear from there is that you feel like that's kind of a common story of of the the era i do i do think a lot of us got started there i i never made eagle that's one of my regrets in life i was playing sports three seasons and i just never got my final couple of merit badges and, and my, did my project. So uh, that I wish I'd done that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I it's, I, I'm curious, like you, so you grew up in the Berkeley area. Yeah. Is the little right? town called Arinda, which is, I was born in Berkeley and uh, Arinda is just over the hill from Berkeley. And it was kind of the suburban uh, community. My dad was a VP of Crown Zellerback, which is a big paper company in San Francisco. Right. So we, we think of, of the Berkeley area and just California in general as this hotbed of activity when it comes to the outdoor industry and outdoor companies developing. I mean, we look back and, and we recognize that now, um, and we think it all starts with the North Face, uh, but obviously that's that's not the case. Who, who were the gear pioneers? What was the industry like as you were kind of growing up and starting to recognize, you know, outdoor products, outdoor companies. You, you mentioned Ski Hut and Trailwise. What was there kind were, of the state uh, of the industry? Is there were a bunch of them in uh, Colorado too. Jerry and Alpine Design and Holy Bar and Frostline Kits. A lot of people in those days had time to sew up their own sleeping bag. And uh, and then the third kind of hub of influence, I would say, there maybe have been four, but the third would have been Seattle area with uh, early REI and Jim Whitaker. The fourth would be Boston, Massachusetts with Eastern Mountain Sports and a guy named Al McDonough. So that was going on. Uh, that was going on in the early 60s and maybe even in the late 50s. And what what was the catalyst for all this was the Vietnam War. The protests on campus started in 66. Uh, people, a lot of people in Berkeley were opposed to the war and uh Said, hell, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a suit. I'm not gonna get a, get a job. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take off for the summer with my backpack and spend spend my time outdoors. And and uh, I was actually in Berkeley uh, at the early North Face uh, location there uh, during People's Park, which was a, a well known kind of riot in Berkeley where a few people died. And and uh, that was uh, so it was. And we got tear gas. We had to send our uh, our sewers home because uh, there was tear gas in the building. Oh, wow. So that's that's kind of the the environment where the North Face develops. Or did you look to any of the the gear pioneers from from earlier in that area? And you mentioned Trailwise and, and Ski Hut. Like, like, yeah, who were some like of your talk, influences? I'd like to talk a little bit about the early North Face because a lot of people have the mistake. Yeah. Doug Tompkins is a huge figure, but he was and he developed the image of the North Face a little bit. It was a, the first store was. 308 Columbus Avenue in San Francisco. It was right between two topless joints, the Condor Club and Big Owls. And and uh, he and he he put up barnwood and green carpet floors. And he was a skier too. And he got it started in 1965. And there was a second store in Palo Alto. And he got a little bored. And by by 68, he was ready to sell the company. And there was an interim group of two brothers that came in for a short time, Arn and Glenn Hersu and they didn't really have the money. They had run ski shops. They didn't have the money to grow. So very quickly, Hap came in and became the primary investor. And the first thing he did was hire me. I actually started a month before he did in April of 1968. And uh, we were just retail then. Um, you think of North Face as a $3 billion company now. Our first year in sales in 1968, we did a total of $300,000 and lost 60000 So it... Uh, it came from a very, very humble roots, but we had, we had the idea, right. Right. So when you first met Hap and you kind of hatched this plan, I mean, what, what were those early conversations like? Why, why the outdoor industry? Why do you, why did you think you two could, could be successful in that space? Well, 
Well, nobody was making what we considered to be really high-end stuff. Jerry, uh, the, the products were good, but we felt we could create a, uh, you know, a higher-end company for people that were really serious, lightweight backpacking, uh, sleeping bags, tents, uh, some apparel. And uh, we just, uh, you know, we were kind of riding the times. It was uh, the president of Stanford uh, University, the student president, Mary Joan Baez. And, and uh, it was just all kind of looped together. The original, uh, there's always been some stories about the original grand opening party of North Face in Berkeley, which was probably in 66, where uh, the Grateful Dead played. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's, I think that's, those are the popular stories, but I think like so much of the outdoor industry now there it's, it's very corporatized. Right. And we kind of forget the roots of the industry where it's just people making stuff because they liked it and they wanted to get outside. And there was, I don't know, that's, that's a piece that's kind of missing. The best thing about it was that most of the store, this was a small store situation for the most part. And, and the individuals just came out and said, I want to be in business for myself. I want to, I want to make, I love the outdoors. I want to make good stuff. And they sprung up in, in Boston, uh, Hank Cohen, in D.C., Tommy Valone in the Carolinas. And, and so the stores were were all small stores. And, and the relationship, there's no contentious relationship uh, to speak of between the, the makers, the early makers of the gear and the shops. We just made the stuff. We priced it fairly and sold it to them and tried to, uh, to back up our name. We were somewhat exclusive in terms of who we would sell to if we had one good shop in a town we wouldn't open the you know the next one or two that came along so it was it was a grassroots type of thing and uh it you know i was there for at north face for 20 years from 68 to 88 and uh, we grew the company with the people that some of the people you've interviewed bruce hamilton mark erickson bill Worland. and uh by by 88 we had made the mistake of trying to expand into retail which we weren't really very good at and we had also bought uh holy bar and sierra designs and we kind of got in trouble with the bank so we ended up uh, selling the company in 68 to bill simon and odyssey for really a fraction of what it was worth i I, i'd be a rich guy if i'd been figured out how to hang on to that but i didn't really know how to do it at the time It's so interesting that that move to retail, it's, it's kind of what, what you mentioned is kind of overextends the company a little bit, gets, gets you out of your comfort zone, um, gets you away maybe from what the company was best at, but the origins of the company is in retail, right? With, is that kind of the primary difference between the Doug Tompkins tenure and, and Hap Klopp is at Doug Tompkins time, it was all retail. They weren't making any of their own the products, decision- but the decision that put us on the map was to start manufacturing. And we opened at 2804 Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. And the front half of the store was a retail store where I worked for a while. And the back half was our first sewing operation where we, we filled uh, down sleeping bags. We had hired uh, Eustace Bauschinger, who I want to get you in touch with because he's an interesting guy. He was the second group that came out of Trailwise. The first group a couple of years earlier were, were the Sierra Zines founders, uh, Bob Swanson and George Marks, and they had set up. And then Eustace kind of became the manufacturing guy, and we grabbed him. Uh, the, Marks and Swanson were, were pivotal guys. They were They were good guys to work with. What was the what was kind of the environment of at the time? You were all were making, you know, product for different companies. Was there was there some bad blood there? Was there? I mean, was there was there, there, was there some there was some competition. healthy competition? There was competition, but we actually got along. We we sold during the day and then drank beer at night. There were before I forget them. There were two fantastic parties that lasted both for many years. One of them was the Shake and Bake from Jansport, and the second one was the Big Dogs party by Sierra West or Rich Kelty, the son of Dick Kelty. And and we we got together and had a hell of a time. I mean, we were we were into having fun as well as growing the business. I a few of those stories have been shared by uh, Jim and Greg Thompson when when I've interviewed them. I've I've heard a number of stories of of parties at outdoor retailer. So <laughs> Good. um that that seat does seem to be an interesting dynamic in the industry is you know this there there is competition but 
there's there's also some some common interest in growing this you know the larger outdoor industry together it, it seems like there's a big enough you know there's big enough there's enough pie for everyone right well, was, like uh, we were we we were kind of not about the ski industry but we did a lot of people use our products for skiing because they were warm and waterproof and and uh, we actually had to go for many years. First, we went to the National Sporting Goods Show in Chicago, which was just a general sporting goods show. And then we, they gave us a small space at the ski industry, the SIA show in Las Vegas. But they didn't treat us very well. The ski guys were running around in their uh, neckties and blue blazers. And, and, and uh, we were stuck off in the corner and paid like three times as much for our boost. So... When I, you know, when I left uh, North Face after the sale in 68, I went to work for uh, outdoor retailer because I was pretty sure I could get the people, the, the, the key players to come to a show. We had the first one in Reno and uh, built a, you know, an industry body there, which has evolved into something else now. But for, for many years, that was where we all got together. Right, right. Yeah, that community aspect is 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 so critical and is kind of a common thread that you see throughout the decades. Um, how did you get involved in this sales side of the North Face? Was it just, is that something you were interested in or was that more just what needed to be done? You did a little of everything in a company, and, and but I was I was kind of sales oriented. And, and so we started making these sleeping bags and we first made enough for ourselves and then enough for some people. So I took the first sales trip to uh to portland oregon got the first order for ever for uh, north face wholesale uh didn't sell rei initially uh, i sold a lot of people in in uh, southern california including the kelty store and the sports chalet and then and then uh, i started hiring sales reps across the country as we could increase our production we had uh, almost 400 people at one time sewing and manufacturing in berkeley it was a it was a good sized business uh on Gilman street. And, uh, it just, it, frankly, we were handicapped by not being able to make the stuff fast enough. There, there was always a little more demand than, than we had production capacity. And that was way before China came in. Right. Yeah. And so I, I want to touch on a few names and maybe, maybe you can share some thoughts on different people that you've interacted with over the years at the North face. So did you, did you have much interaction with Duncan, Duncan Dwell? I did. Uh, he At worked. North Face? He was worked for Doug Tompkins, and he was, uh, yep. he was kind of the computer guy. Uh, and uh, you know, I think I did my first climbing trip. Uh, There's a place called Indian Rock in Berkeley where we all learned to you know to rappel and climb a fairly easy pitch. I discovered pretty quickly that that climbing wasn't going to be my my thing. But I do remember Duncan from there, and I also remember him always trying to fix the uh, the point of sale uh, machines we had in the store. <laughs> Yeah, I just barely uh, just just connected with Duncan, oh, good. Um, and 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 he mentions kind of being the last, the la- one of the last people that worked directly with Doug at the North Face or was hired by Doug is kind of that last, uh, one of the last people that kind of was yeah. part of that early early part of the North Face. I, yeah, I would agree um, with that. The the other is Jim Jim Berryhill, who I know created the first first North Face catalog. Um, did you ever interact with Jim? No, I didn't. In the first catalog, I, I think I asked if you had one. It was a, uh, a a bum sitting in a in a gas station. It didn't. It wasn't an outdoor shot at all. But it was, and I I thought Eustace had to do with that. I took over the catalog about two years in uh, and used a guy named Roland Dare for catalogs for yep. many many years. The, uh, Jim, I don't know. I can't. I can't name. Okay. Uh, yeah it sounds like it sounds like i mean when we've talked with him he illustrated one of the early early covers um and so yeah we've had some good chats with him but he it sounds like he was there pretty early on it's maybe 66 i think the other name the other name that you've run across is uh, david alcorn and he was uh he and half my work to develop a logo which i thought was very important to identify the products and he came up with the the three curve logo which is still you know, well in use and kind of iconic today. Well, what's what's been interesting to me is is kind of that evolution of the logo and the introduction of the modern logo that we see. But as I've gone through Summit magazines um, and kind of poured through that publication, you see really early advertisements from some of these different brands. And and as I've looked through some of those early summits, I see 
what I think are some of the, and maybe you can confirm this, some of the earliest North Face advertisements right. um, appear in, in Summit. Is that is were you working with them at that time? Or did you everybody, interact with everybody? Did with Summit, but it wasn't the logo. Didn't I? Don't think we did the logo until about uh, sixty nine or seventy. But right. uh, I have yeah. one label that I I mentioned in a in a uh, blog. But there was a time that actually there's a label that says on sleeping bag saying made for the North face by Sierra designs. And so Sierra designs actually made bags. And then they found out that uh, North face was going to go into the manufacturing business. So they cut them off. And then the next labels were, were North face labels. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's some of the earliest logos that I've seen are it's, it's the North face, but kind of in the shape of icicles. Yeah, uh, that melting was, icicles. That yeah. was the Tompkins era. That was not. Uh, yeah. we we evolved from there. Right, right, okay. So that's the first time I've ever seen those, and they kind of appear in Summit Magazine. I've I've tried to make the case that Summit was one of those publications that was a launching pad for a lot of a lot of the early brands, and I don't know if you feel that way, but it uh, seemed like agree. one of those publications that helped helped a lot of brands launch, yeah. whether it was Chenard or North Face. Climbing was a big part of it. You know the early story, probably of uh, of the Great Pacific Ironworks, and and mm-hmm. there's a classic shot of of uh, Yvonne and uh, uh, Frost uh, in front of their place wearing these heavy, uh, you know, kind of uh, blacksmith uh, uh, uniforms, and uh, they kept that for a long time. And I think the only reason they had to separate uh, GPIW from Patagonia was that there was a legal liability for, uh, you know, for making climbing hardware. And some people were misusing the stuff like ascenders and so forth. So they felt like they were jeopardizing the whole company and, uh, and then sold off uh, GPIW. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. A couple of other names, Mark, Mark and Jan. Uh, good, good friends. I went to their, uh, I went to their wedding. Uh, he, he was hired. The, the the funny story, and Bruce mentioned it in his thing, is he walked in uh, to North Face about five times, and I was running the sewing floor, and I didn't really know what I was doing, but but I didn't hire him four times. The fifth time he came in, uh, I said, okay, we need somebody. Here's a broom, and here's a pair of trimmers. I don't know if you've heard this story, but I said, when you're not using one, use use the other. And his, his roommate, by chance, was uh, Bruce Hamilton, and he told Bruce how he got in. So Bruce did the same thing, got hired, setting grommets on packs. And Bruce's story is pretty amazing because he's a smart guy. But he went from basically entry-level manufacturing to be president of the company many years later. So he, he has quite a quite a record. Well, that, that leads me into, I guess, Bruce Hamilton. Thoughts, thoughts on Bruce and his contributions. I know Mark, Bruce, um, you know, all, all very involved in, in iconic products from the north face in particular the oval intention right uh, yes and uh I, I have to correct the record i saw another company said they did the first geodesic tents but that's really not right we were completely tied up with bucky fuller at the at the beginning but but uh i had one other point there and it, it just slipped me but keep going and we'll uh we'll catch it well, so maybe you can can clear up some of this too. We talked a little bit with Bruce about this, but um, do you have memories of Bob Gillis rolling up in his van to the uh, the North Face offices? Uh, Bob Gillis was a real—I uh, would describe him as a nice guy, but a real piece of work. He he believed that the good vibes of the earth uh, only came to you if you were uh, you were barefoot. So I never saw him with a pair of shoes on, and and he had some ideas about tents that were pretty good. He but but it was a. It was a hippie enterprise, and and but he and Bruce kind of hit it off, so he contributed in there too. And and I think his company was called Shelter Systems, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, that, that comes to me. Uh, the other, I you, I want to don't want to skip by Jan either because uh, Jan worked for me as my sourcing person later on at North Face. She went to the Far East all the time, set up manufacturing when we finally started that process, and uh, she was she was terrific. That's great. Yeah. So a couple stories on on Bob and and Bruce. Well, I, I should say both of them have donated their sketchbooks to the the lot to the library here. So it's it's really interesting to see their sketch sketchbooks side by side, considering how much they work together on on tent design and um, you know some of the Bruce Hamilton materials actually includes a, a letter from from Buckminster Fuller, kind of talking back and forth about about that 
partnership. And um, it was interesting. We we connected with Bob's partner, Judy, um, when we first learned about him and and reached out. And um, I think they were a little surprised that we <laughs> we were interested in his contributions and his history. And um, and so I think you, they were a little flattered that the you're yeah. digging a little deeper than most people do. You know, the, the surf, service stories have, have been there for a long time, but you've you've got into some areas where where it really hasn't been covered. So I'm glad to see you doing it. Yeah. That. Well, and I think they were pretty flattered that we we want we cared, right? And we wanted to honor his legacy, his contributions, and, and that's a part of the work that we're doing. So yeah, that I, I I think Bruce shared the story of of Bob rolling up in a van that he was living in with with um with his family at the time. A young barefoot son too. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of fun. We've, we've received some photos as well that show, you know, Bruce, Bob um, and Hap all on the day that they were christening the oval intention when it came yeah. off the manufacturing floor with dried, was it dried ice cream? Freeze dried uh, ice cream, I think was what they showered it with. I was actually uh, in the back there. I'm sticking through one of the portholes in the tent. Uh, I'm six foot seven, so I was the only guy that could stick my head through it. So there, so I'm in a couple of those photos too. That was a great day. And Bucky actually took a nap in my office. He was he was getting older, but he he said I need to sit and put on my my dark glasses. And uh, he took a half an hour nap, and then he came back and gave us a lecture on geodesics. That's great. Um, well, Sally McCoy, the, the one who, who made all of this possible. So thoughts on Sally? Sally, uh, I like to think of myself as kind of a mentor of Sally, but she went way past me. But she came into the North Face. She was the head of the outing program at Dartmouth, and she was very smart. She came in. I said, I need a job. And I said, I don't have anything for you. Sorry, I was in the sales and marketing area. But she came back four or five times. Like, this this lady is smart. So finally, she took a entry level job in in the accounting department of the retail stores, and she just worked her way up. She just showed that she was smart and could do things and had energy. And you know, she worked her way up to VP of of sales at one time, and then on to be president of several companies, including Camelback. And and she was head of the outdoor the women's outdoor organization, and I'm pretty sure she was ahead of the. The whole uh, yeah OR operation that we that we set up at one time. She's uh, still a good friend and, and a great lady. Yeah, uh, Bill Werlin, you mentioned as well, and we've had some good chats with Bill as well. Close close friends still. We send jokes back and forth and get together when we we can. Uh, I hired him at a gas station. I was flying back from an Eastern sales trip. And he was a boot rep, and he said, I need a, a job. And we were trying to buy. We actually did acquire at North Face Loa Boots at one time. I don't know if you ever heard that story, but it was yeah. a German-made no. heavy company, and he was repping for them. And so he showed up. His his van was uh, not running, and he looked like he hadn't gotten any sleep for three days. But I interviewed him in the gas station with his van up on a on a uh, you know, carrier device and uh so this guy's a pretty good guy. I think I'll get him to come uh, come work for us as a rep, and then eventually uh, he came to to Berkeley and kind of stepped up to a, a variety of you know more important positions. Had a customer service and uh, uh, head of marketing at one point. He actually became the sequence uh, under Bill Simon, which is I'm jumping ahead now, almost 10, 15 years. But but Bill hired both uh, uh, Bill Whirlin and Bruce Hamilton as uh, presidents of North Face, and when when uh, when Bill got hired, there was a vacancy. He had been president of Sierra Design, so I was working for outdoor retailer at the time. And he said, "Why don't you come up here and be president of Sierra Design?" So I was kind of tired of commuting every every week by airplane, so I took that job, and that kind of got me into the the Odyssey organization, which I don't want to say too much about it, but it had uh, it had some ambition, but it also had some dysfunctional aspects to it, and. Uh, they were the ones that, uh, you know, that bought uh, in 1968, uh, we got in trouble financially at uh, North Face. And uh, and to me, it was because we weren't good at retail and we tried to overexpand, but we got the bank mad at us. And so the company ended up being sold. And the buyer was Bill Simon from Hong Kong, who had been an owner of another outdoor company, uh, Snow Lion, or Snow Lion originally. And, and uh 
he was working in Hong Kong and he worked at night in Hong Kong because he didn't have enough money for an office. So he was started shipping products. He was the first guy that really shipped a volume of products from uh, from uh, China and Taiwan and Hong Kong back to the United States. And uh, I, I worked in that office many times and, and uh, he had a lot of companies. He also had bought Marmot and he had a bunch of uh, not so much outdoor companies, but uh, he had a ski company and and um, but he both he and Hap and I I don't want to I don't want to malign anybody, but they didn't pay attention enough to the financial reports and and one thing I learned I was a sales guy, but I said if you don't you know if you don't keep some extra money in the bank, you're going to run into a problem at some point. So I I became very focused on gross margin and, and profitability and not trying to expand too fast. And that kind of, that was what uh, led me to, to mountain hardware and, and, you know, trying to do that there. And that was a success. Well, it, it's, I mean, Bill Simon is a name that always comes up in these conversations of the kind of evolution of the industry and, and, and him and Odyssey in particular being kind of that driving force of the outdoor industry, getting into manufacturing overseas. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's it that's that's always a story that seems to come up. But the the North Face had been dabbling in in producing product overseas. It seemed like even before I, I Odyssey. I, is that right? With when I was Windy involved. In, I was involved in that in about sixty seven because I the handwriting was on the wall. The the cost differences were so great between the cost of manufacturing and the and the red tape in the U S. and and making stuff in the early days when the when labor rates were significantly lower than than they are today and. So I did go over a few times. I tried to build a second line, didn't work too well. But but uh, uh, there was a lot. It was, everybody eventually for high labor intensive products had to uh, had to go over there. There there were exceptions. There was like Dana Gleason kept his Dana designs and and Mystery Ranch uh, manufacturing in the U.S. and some and we continued to make some products in the U.S. But basically that was a that was a kind of a massive transition of, of the uh, production capacity of the industry. Well, I was in a gear store up in Portland recently and I saw they had some, a second hand area and I saw some windy pass product oh, yeah. there. So it's, I, it's, it's, it's still floating around. I'm sure you see it. From time it, to time. it wasn't bad, but it, I tried to do it. I learned something from that. I found out that people wanted more bells and whistles and more products and, and not, uh, not so much price oriented. We tried to, we said, well, if we're selling this much of the high end stuff, we can sell even more of the other stuff. And it didn't, it really didn't pan out that way. So was Windy Pass that, that kind of originated with you? Was, yeah. yeah, that was, Is that, that where was, that concept came from? That was pretty much me. And it was only a year and a half deal. We, uh, we continued to, and that was also about the time that, 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 that we started getting into trouble. We, we'd acquired Sierra Designs. We uh, had opened some retail stores, one in Seattle, and and uh, we were uh, we didn't have the money to expand at the rate that we uh, that we were expanding. So, sure, yeah. So you you mentioned during your time sales grew astronomically. I mean, what do you attribute that su- success to? Obviously, you know. Uh, a lot of amazing work on your part. Where, why do you feel like the North Face hit at that time and and was successful? Well, it's um, the higher end product was was there mainly. It was just the demand. Uh, backpacking was a huge thing in the seventies and eighties. A lot of people wanted to go. There were related activities, skiing, paddling, and and stuff. And it just had it had a huge momentum. And and uh, all I did was try to keep the sales force selling and keep the production, uh, you know, coming at the at, uh, as well as possible. And and uh, it was a fun time. I I have very very few bad memories about that. And we had our occasional fights with the competitor and dealer. But uh, Jim and Greg Thompson that you mentioned were a small shop when we started out. I sold them down in uh, I think it was in Tarzana, California, and then then they opened. Uh, they opened uh, Wilderness Experience, and they got Eustace, who was a good guy who had already gone to Class Five from North Face, and he helped them learn how to sew. He actually brought them into his own factory and and helped them sew. And so, uh, you know, that it, it shows that the industry was was uh, you know helpful to each other. Greg Greg has told this story on the podcast, but maybe Eustace was a was a part of this. But um, he mentioned 
Jordan's sitting down in front of a industrial sewing machine and with a bottle of Jack Daniels and uh, trying to figure out how to, how this thing works. Um, and eventually Eustace, he learned how to sew, but Eustace has been sober for quite a few years, but, but that, that was definitely the case. He, he was, uh, he did a lot of funny things this time. He, uh, uh, he, he did a catalog that had, you know, you should get one if you don't have one. That uh, was Smokey the Bear featured in cartoon form, and, and but Smokey's motto was "piss on it," and uh, he got a letter from the Forest Service telling him to cease and desist. This was a wilderness experience catalog. No, that was a class five, and then he also oh, had this a was great, a class five. Uh, he also had a great catalog, which you should have that that had a climber on the sidewalk with a few cigarette butts, and he's working his way along the cracks on the sidewalk, and it takes a minute for you realize that that's what it is it's he was he had some some good ideas oh yeah class five is a little bit of a blank blank uh blank space for us so that's we'll have to we'll have to try to track some of those down i, I reconnected with eustace he's uh ornery as ever but he's uh, he lives in Harrington, nevada and uh he's been in the mail order business in other areas for a long time so you should definitely yeah. talk to him I'll definitely reach out. Well, you you mentioned Jim and Greg, um, and and I know when I talked to Greg, they said that's when they first connected with you was was through selling Loa boots. But that was when you were at the North Face, correct? Yes, we we did Loa for a couple okay. of years. The price, the dollar okay. was peak then, and the price, the boots got heavier, and the prices got higher. And we finally said, hey, we don't know what we're doing in the boot business yeah. very well, so we we decided to go back to making uh, North Face stuff. Um, Greg, Greg also mentioned a nickname and maybe you can confirm this one. He, he mentioned something about you being called one punch Gilbert. Is, is no, that, I, saw, I saw that. And I don't know, uh, in, in college, I did get in a, being a basketball player. I got in a few that stuffs, but I'm not sure where that came from. He, I don't remember punching anybody in the outdoor industry, although, uh, it did happen. It did happen once in a while, but I, I can't really, uh, expand on that very well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, well, maybe we'll move on from, from North face days to more outdoor retailer. Um, we've talked a bit with Larry Harrison, obviously a critical figure in, in all things, outdoor industry trade shows going back to the California backpackers show. Um, in fact, he actually just donated some materials to our archive. It's like early California backpacking trade show, uh, advertising material and, and exhibitor records and attendees and some really amazing material. Um, what what are your memories of kind of the early trade shows? You mentioned and uh, the sporting goods show, but and, I guess thoughts on that and how you got into the trade show business. He was on the right track with the California show, but it was somewhat uh, localized. And what what outdoor retailer did they they were actually in the surf business. They had a, uh, a business called Action Sports, which really was successful. But they couldn't get the participants in, in outdoor to, to join up together, and so that's kind of why I got hired by outdoor retailer was to they had a, they had a magazine, but but the the show was the important thing, and I I called all my contacts of twenty years and said you know we need to have our own show, we need to have our own industry group, we we don't need to be part of anybody else, we don't need to be part of the ski show, and and I worked I worked pretty hard on that for about two two and a half years. Um, there's a guy named Jeff O'Keefe. I don't know whether that name has come through. He was with Adventure 16, which is one of the big specialty stores. And he he was involved. In that. He, he first told me I shouldn't do it, but then he finally said, hey, you were right. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you mentioned this briefly, but um, kind of how you got involved in outdoor retailer. Can you I mean, maybe, maybe share a little bit about the early days and the origins of the outdoor retailer show? Well, it, the magazine had started before, uh, well, I was still at the North Face, but uh, I got to know Jeff Wetmore. He became a good friend uh, who was one of the founders, but they were doing a not very good job in the outdoor. They didn't have the right people. And, and the, uh, the surf show was kind of more bathing suit ads and, you know, people looking cool on the beach. And so they kind of tried to transfer that look into the outdoor industry and that didn't really fly. So uh, I got mad at them at one time. I grabbed one of their magazines and took a red pen and went through the whole magazine and circled everything that I thought was wrong with it. And uh, they flew up to Berkeley and uh, said, okay, what, uh, what can we do? And so I, I didn't go to work for them right away, but but I gave some suggestions and got them a little bit on the right track. And then when I was 
when I left North Face after the sale, uh, I said, hey, this would be fun. And uh, so I commuted down to Laguna Beach to, uh, and and you know, I actually sent the letter out that opened the second outdoor uh, show. First, we did Reno. I got to I got to fulfill one of my fantasies. We rented the whole uh, bowling alley, and I got to be the guy behind the counter handing out the shoes to the people. And we all just took over and had a bowling and beer drinking night. And uh, uh, that that was uh, that show grew. Well, it started at probably five hundred booths and grew to, into the thousands. And I think, like a lot of other successful things, it maybe lost its way a little bit. I remember the last couple visits to an uh, outdoor retailer. Uh, there were guys there. I said, "Who the hell are these? Who the hell are all these companies that are here that I've never heard of?" And and you know, since that time, the grassroots organization has kind of become what the early outdoor retailer was. I mean, the, the serious shops that are left, which are there, are certainly not as many as there were in the. 80s but but uh they've kind of formed their own group right so that that first show started what year would that have been the first show uh, i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna say 69 1960 oh is it seven seven or or 80 well, it, it, it started before that and jeff wetmore okay. you get him on could tell you but but it hadn't been successful they'd done one in san diego wow. one in las vegas or maybe two in las vegas and but it wasn't working because it, you need a uh, you need to have the key guys to make that show work. If you're not if you don't have the five or six, you know, prime movers, it's not going to happen. And that that kind of was my job to round those guys up. Sure, sure, okay. So and you stayed with them for for a little while, um, and then you you get a call from Bill about an opportunity. Is that exactly. right? Kind of 1991. You're, uh, you've got good intelligence. That's correct. And I finally got, got uh, I was coaching my son's basketball team and I just got tired of commuting. So I came up and became uh, president of Sierra Designs in an old paint factory, uh, you know, a little ways from North Face. But uh, that was, um, I, I really enjoyed that. There were great people there. Some names, uh, Paul Kramer, uh, Mike Wallenfels, uh, Roberta Hernandez, who's still there after 30 years. Uh, Chris Clark, uh, Martin Zamidas, who's a tent designer that now does sling fin. So we we uh, we were pretty good uh, within the Odyssey organization, but I have my issues with Odyssey. So I finally said, I Odyssey went it went into Chapter Eleven and had to sell off their businesses, and so we made an effort to acquire uh, Sierra Designs, and, and these kind of artificial roadblocks kept kept coming up. So I went and found some investors and made one last effort and that was the halloween party on in uh uh like what the hell year was it I, it, it was um 93 i guess or something right in there and uh, we uh, i went over in my cowboy outfit and tried one last time to buy the business they turned me down so i quit and i had a letter from paul kramer he quit and the next monday we were opened up across the street from uh, north face with uh with mountain hardware and uh, to let them know we were there we got a big truck and put a giant logo on the side of the truck so they could drive by it every day and see it see us over there and they actually gave us north face was in my opinion was, was somewhat mismanaged during that period so what they did was give a an opportunity for some smaller companies to uh move move probably a little faster than they could have otherwise well, that's kind of interesting. The state of the industry was is really interesting in the '90s. I feel like because there's all this consolidation, right? It's like every yes. a lot of things kind of falling under Odyssey. But then, like you say, that also creates opportunity for new brands to spring up. So it kind of seems like the '90s. There's a little bit of a rebirth of the industry. You get some interesting companies popping back up, um, including Mountain Hardware. Yeah, um, so that was nineteen. 19- we haven't talked Patagonia or Arcteryx, but I, I do want to uh, say. I do want to say something about Patagonia. I mean, Doug, Doug Tompkins was a close friend of Yvonne Chouinard's. They had a group called the the Fun Hogs that went out and did all kinds of stuff. And and uh, he, you know, I have utmost respect for Yvonne because he he always had a bigger picture than just making money in the outdoor industry. And you know, when he there was an article in the not too long ago in the I think it was in the Wall Street Journal that said billionaire no more, and he basically set up a company to try to sustain his company instead of selling it uh, to continue to do environmental things. And, and uh, 
he was a, he was a guy who it was really a, a a man of conviction, and I have all respect for him. Yeah. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting era, the '90s. You get let's see who else would have popped up around that time. You all, um, Black Diamond, kind of comes around in '89. Ish, they, they, buy, they were buy hardware out. though at that time. Uh, Arcterix was was one that came on and they do things, some taped garments that were really nicely made, and you know right. they they came in and were a, a player too. Sure, sure. Um, well, I'm I'm curious. I, I'm trying to get down to the bottom of this one, and maybe you can help clarify for me. We came across two Mountain Hardware catalogs, um, and I've tried to confirm this with a few people at the company. But the address is Colorado Springs, or or is it Fort Collins? Um, And the more I've looked into it, it sounds like there was another Mountain Hardware operating in in Colorado, maybe shortly before or around the same time as Mountain Hardware California. Is that something that you had ever heard about? No, no. Uh, there was an out. There was a hardware store that sold outdoor stuff in Truckee, California, called Mountain Hardware spelled w-a-r-e we were spelled w-e-a-r uh-huh. and uh, we actually sold him some stuff but but the uh i'm trying to think you, you probably know the story of the sale of uh uh with north face was sold back to bill simon and uh they they hired a hotshot from the uh from the entertainment industry who didn't know what he was doing and they moved the whole business to uh Carbondale, I believe, Colorado. You, that, and that's a story you should probably. It, I mean, it was they did things that were helpful to us, so I can't complain. But but uh, they did some goofy things. <laughs> well, I, I'll send you pictures of this this catalog we've come across. There there was actually a business card in it as well um, for someone who worked for the company. I've been trying to track them down to to you know get the story well, straight. There's 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 two Mountain Hardwares out there. The, the only thing it could have been uh, is that uh, we had reps, of course, across the, the country, and it could have been uh, there was a guy named Chris Mathias who worked for Mountain Hardware in Boulder, and he was a very capable rep and and. It may have been something that was tied to a sales organization rather than the company, but there was never there was never a headquartered Mountain Hardware back there. I was there for ten years and stayed for two years as president after our sale to Columbia. And I I have to say that I have second thoughts even today at the thirtieth anniversary. The new president of uh, of Mountain Hardware, uh, Troy, is doing a good job to bring back some of the culture of the old days. And I, and uh, I've talked to him and I'm to support him when I can. Uh, Columbia was really good at middle market, high volume products. They weren't as good at a specialty brand. I mean, we were out trying to compete with Patagonia and, and uh, uh, that, at that level and, and, uh, and North face. And um, they, they didn't want to go there. It became a little bit more of a sportswear company. But it's yeah, crazy. did you interact much, or did you have much interaction with Tim Boyle and Gert and and kind of the I, Columbia? Well, crowd? I did. For, I did for two years. I was still president, and I had a three-year contract. And I said, "How about letting me go now?" We got Mike Wallenfels in there as president, and he said, "No, you got. If you want your stock, you got to stay three years." So I said, "Well, how about a half deal?" And so they made me a half deal, and I showed up at trade shows and and did a little bit of work, but but. Uh, Mike became the next president, and then it went on to a, a, a number of people that I don't think were, uh, you know, well prepared for the job. But the, the new guy, I'm, I'm optimistic. Right. Oh, that's great. Well, I, it's, I've seen you being more more active on social media, promoting this the 30th anniversary. And as you look back and and think about you know 30 years of Mountain Hardware, and and even thinking back further to you know the early days of the North Face and um, what do you, what do you think of your your place in the history of the industry? Like, do you do you think about that at all? I don't. I mean, I'm I'm proud of the, the things I did. I'm uh, not everything was perfect, but uh, I, I mainly just think I'm, I'm grateful that I picked a, a good industry where about ninety five percent of the people were good people. I I I fished with them. I drank beer with them. I went to parties with them, and and uh, uh, I I'm I'm disappointed when somebody doesn't doesn't 
keep the standard up. But I think, you know, I, I, I have to laugh at Jim and Greg Thompson because I saw them as kind of young kids coming into the business and they both ended up having, you know, longer careers. And, and, uh, but I, I feel like I got my rec- recognition and I like to, I like to uh, give, give that to some of the people that work, you know, with us too. So I'm, I, I really have no complaints. Well, that's great. Well, what did we miss? Uh, we we kind of went through we went through a lot of history in a short amount of time, but but um, are there individuals or moments or you know things that you're proud of that we we didn't cover? I'm looking at, at a couple of notes I made. I got a shot in my eye for a glo- for a, a retina issue, and I can't read very well today. But um, what uh, we talked about the 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 sale of uh, the opening of Mountain Hardware and the sale of the uh, company to Columbia, I went on and did, you know, I, one thing I had was a pretty good eye for uh, a brand and a product. And in order to be successful in this business, it probably started, if you didn't have a product that was needed or worthwhile, you were probably screwed. But, but other than that, the people that were there and the brand momentum that you created uh, was there. And so I worked, uh, I became a board member, uh, an investor in Sims fly fishing I was involved. I was a board member and an investor in Jetboil. I worked with um, Hydroflask for a couple of years when they were on their, you know, great growth run. And then recently, I moved half a year to uh, Bozeman so I can fish a little more. And with my uh, with my stepson, I we started another company called Stone Glacier. You probably haven't even heard of that, but you can look it up. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. it's more it's high end stuff, but it's more for the hunting market. But but it's it's broader than that. And uh, so that's I figure that's my swan song. I'm I'm not I'm too damn old to uh, do that again. But it's it's been a fun run. Why did I not know you were you were a part of Stone Glacier? Uh, you know it's funny because the outdoor <laughs> industry is uh, and the hunting industry don't really mesh, and uh, for yeah. a lot of reasons ideological and other but but the people if you know people from uh wyoming or montana you know they're not they don't shoot deer from the back of a pickup truck they they you know they take their hunting very seriously they they keep the meat and and uh i just uh i i thought i thought that a lot of the the techniques the the budgeting the fundraising uh that we used with north face and with uh Mountain hardware would work in the in the outdoor industry and, and that uh, or in the hunting industry. So that that was the basis for that. There's actually a, there are three companies that uh, are up in that area. There's um, there's one called uh, Kuyu, one called Sitka, and then and then the, the latest one growing rapidly is uh, Stone Glacier. So when when did you help start that company? Uh, about eight years ago, eight, eight or nine okay, years. Eight ago. years. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you what 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 gets you up in the morning? What are you excited about? And it sounds like you have got plenty on your plate to keep you busy. I'm I'm just having fun now, but I like, you know, I like talking to people that are, that are positive about this and giving them my two bits worth and sometimes it's worth listening to and other times I would uh, I would say not, but uh I, I just I mean, wh- where else would you like to be in the in the world but outdoors? So uh it's just it was a fun place to go and i i got into the business part of it i really had to evolve from a sales and marketing type of guy into a you know a guy that watched the bottom line and kept an eye on the budgets and kept people from overspending and or hiring too many people so i i became kind of a a numbers nerd in that in that way but uh all of it was fun yeah well that's a probably a good good place to end our recording on uh jack this has been great um i appreciate you taking time and sharing your thoughts and um this has been really really fun thanks for listening to the highlander podcast for more conversations with outdoor leaders subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts watch episodes on the outdoor product design and development youtube channel or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast follow along on instagram at usu outdoor product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.